This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hi and welcome to The Hindu Podcast. I'm your host for today, Abdul Salam. We have with us uh, Samrat Chaudhary, whose new book, The Braided River, A Journey Along the Brahmaputra, has recently been published. Uh, this is his second novel after The Urban Jungle. Uh, Samrat is a Shillong native and a journalist turned author. Hi, Samrat. Hi, Abdus. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. To start off, uh, since your book is uh, emphasizing more on the sights and sounds of the river, uh, one tends to lose track of timelines. Did you traverse the entire length of the Brahmaputra from the point it enters India to its eventual confluence with the Ganga at one go? No, uh, it was not one single long journey. It was actually a number of separate journeys and basically each of the uh, the book is divided into sections and parts. And so each uh, part roughly corresponds to one separate trip. So basically, uh, there was one trip which was uh, what is called beginnings in the book, which is basically our first glimpse of the river and uh, then a journey along a couple of the formative tributaries. And then there was a second trip up the Siang, along the Siang River Valley, all the way up to the China border. And then a third for Upper Assam, a fourth for Lower Assam, and the fifth for Bangladesh. Okay, five installments with the last uh, in, in Bangladesh, where you go to Gualandu and all those places. Yeah. And what was the time span like? You began the book uh, and the first of the travels in 2016? Uh, I think it was 2015, actually. It's been such a long time that uh, I have to jog my memory to remember exactly. Right, right. But you take it up to the NRC days, so basically it's 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 uh, uh, till about 2018 when you actually wind up all your travels and map all the political cross currents. Yeah. You also mentioned television and Bollywood uh, up in the hills. Is life changing there too fast on account of modernization and New Delhi bidding to secure its frontier regions? In fact, you issue the same lament about Dugri in Lower Assam later on in the book as well. Well, life is definitely changing and it has changed quite a lot uh, in recent years, post-liberalization especially. Uh, uh, but uh, I suppose it is inevitable as well. And uh, I suppose that uh, you know the people living there do want a lot of this change. So it's all very well for somebody like me who's going there to you know just look around to... Uh, want it to be the way it is and remain the way it is and and you know because it looks pretty to me but uh, of course for somebody living there I guess they want many of the same things that people living in Delhi, Mumbai and Bangalore do you know in the big cities do. In fact there's also the issue of uh, corruption and a lot of uh, vested interests at stake which you refer to in the book in that lengthy section on dams uh, an issue on which you have very strong views uh, I read all the various arguments that you put uh, uh, about, you know, rams, whether they're good for the region or they aren't. Uh, 
Would you consider run-of-the-river hydroelectricity projects to be a more viable option, or do you think we should not mess with the untamed river at all? Oh, I think that, you know, again, uh, I am not really a hardliner on this. I am sort of somewhere in the middle, according to my own view of it. I think that uh, uh, people do need electricity and run-of-the-river uh, projects, I think, now should be able to satisfy their you know, simple requirements of lighting and heating and things like that. And, uh, you know, charging the phone, basically, that sort of requirement can easily be met by very small projects. So uh, it, it can be done without too much damage or destruction to the environment. The Arunachal Tibet trade links were closed off after the Indochina War of 62. Uh, communication routes downstream were severed by the India-Pakistan War of 65. Uh, are historical linkages an inevitable casualty of the modern nation state? Or is there any way out? Can we actually have a certain sense of liminality as far as the borders are concerned? I think the process is now again in, in uh, reverse, but it's at the very early stages of being reversed. Uh, we had a period where people were busy drawing borders and hardening those borders. And that happened in our case on this subcontinent. Uh, around 1947, and in this case, up to 1971. But uh, the uh, you know the the process is actually to some extent now slowly being reversed because uh, there is again a, a sense of you know an importance of reconnections which we see, and there's a lot of talk of connectivity, and uh, so this connectivity these connectivity projects have now begun. And uh, there are efforts to uh, start uh, sort of trade wherever the situation is peaceful enough to allow it. That is not the case with the China border, but uh, uh, we do have a slightly you know, better or a much better situation on other borders. And so it is happening. There is, there is an effort to reconnect. So the cargo and ferry links with Bangladesh, you foresee... You know, are, are things that could actually open up as we go ahead? I think so. I think it, it's going to happen because on the one hand, the politics uh, is all about sort of keeping people out. But, uh, you know, money is a wonderful thing when it comes to uh, smoothing relationships between communities, nations, etc., etc. Suddenly, you know, all the, all the hatred for each other disappears when the love for money appears. And uh, so it's basically it's the economic and financial sort of uh, pressures which are pushing these things. People figure figure that the you know cost of transportation is much lower on the river, so we might as well transport things along the river. And as long as it's not passenger traffic, I don't think that there's going to be too much objection. So, you know, how difficult is it uh, as a writer to piece together a travelogue when it is essentially too much landscape and not enough people, as was the case in. Uh, Arunachal upriver from Assam. Uh, the problem isn't acute uh, downriver. The portraits that you have of Upper Assam and Lower Assam towns are quite delectable. Thank you. But how difficult is it when you go upriver? I actually enjoyed the Siang bit quite a lot. Uh, we didn't meet a lot of people, but then again, you know, I'm not sort of meeting large numbers of people. So uh, those little interactions we had, for example, there was this pokey little shop which was the only place basically where we could get food to eat up in you know for for dinner at night yeah and we'd go there 
every day. And uh, so I've written about it at length in the book about my interactions with with and uh, her her sort of view of things. You go back to it a second time around, right? When you missed the bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we went back to the same place uh, on our way up and on our way down. So you mentioned that your maternal grandmother is from Maimon Singh in what is now Bangladesh. You you traverse all those areas, Dubri, Gwalpara, uh, at a time when the NRC process was underway. Does that personal history inform your take on the National Register of Citizens exercise and the Citizenship Amendment Act? I suppose that is inevitable. I guess that uh, you know we cannot step outside of ourselves. There is always some element of subjectivity which even if we do not want it to creep in, will inevitably creep in. And uh, so uh, probably the, you know, the history that uh, has come to me, not through any reading, but but through the lived experience of my own family members is also something that I carry with me. And definitely it, it probably informs my views of uh, the entire uh, way in which, uh, you know, people have come to be in the places they are dealing with the situations that they are. How do you foresee this process uh, you know, from here? It's, it's still ongoing. It's middle of the road. Uh, there are 19 lakh odd people whose names uh, are still out. There's a, you know, uh, uh, objections and statements haven't been issued to the people whose names have been left out. Uh, how do you see things uh, unraveling? The state government wants a fresh exercise. Is it is it is it uh, too murky? I mean, do you see any uh, light at the end of the tunnel? I haven't been following the you know the regular whatever political updates or or whatever the latest news might be on this. Uh, my book was essentially on the and I sort of touched upon things that I came along the way. Uh, whether it's the Indo-China border dispute at one end or it's NRCCA at the other end. Uh, I don't know what what the uh, you know what the politicians have in mind, but uh, this much is is definitely there that we all know that this has been an element of politics uh, in Assam for a really long time. And by a really long time, I mean I don't mean uh, twenty years or thirty years or you know just going back to the Assam agitation. It actually goes back a lot more. It uh, it goes back, I think, uh, as far as 1937 at least, because that's when uh, electoral politics started in Assam. Uh, that's when the Assam Assembly, which is actually it was at that time in Shillong, uh, began its uh, its first sort of uh, operations. And uh, so this has been an element of politics in Assam for a very long time, and it's not something that is going to just go away. Uh, it will remain. It's going to be there one way or the other in, in the politics of the state. Yeah, this actually brings me to this other point where you mentioned a little remembered shift uh, of the shift of the literary and cultural center uh, from Western to Eastern Assam. Uh, is that difference visceral as one descends from Upper Assam? Uh, and again, by extension, at another level, how sharp is the Assamese-Bengali divide now? Again, I have an outsider's perspective because firstly, I'm from Shillong and I've never, so, you know, this was a travelogue. So basically, I'm, I'm a traveler, but I'm a traveler from next door. And uh, so I don't have the insider's perspective on this. I have the outsider's perspective. Uh, but uh, 
I think uh, it seems that to me that uh, as an outsider watching from you know watching occasionally from a bit of a distance that the uh, uh, axis of politics is visibly shifting. It used to be along linguistic lines, and now, of course, thanks to the uh, linguistic identity politics being subsumed by religious identity politics, it seems to be uh, shifting in that direction. This insider-outsider perspective that you mentioned uh, of, of being someone from Assam's neighborhood, uh, there are other contexts of insider and outsider that uh, play in the book as well. Uh, you mentioned being accosted by army jawans in Geling, Arnachal. Again, later on in the book, in Dubri in Assam, uh, you refrain from conversing with a group of women uh, near the riverbank uh, for fear of it being construed as an attempt at flirtation. Uh, in a way, is, is non-fiction in South Asia easier for someone from the West? I think so. I think that that would be in many ways easier. In some ways, it's harder because, you know, language and things like that might be difficult. In terms of access? In terms of access, definitely, if, if it's a, you know, if it's a, white foreigners then they have uh, probably they'll be treated a certain way that a local won't and uh, of course you know uh, somebody from a country considered suspicious or hostile will definitely not so so it really depends on uh, you know if if they see a white foreigner then you know how our countrymen and women are you know there's there's still a, a bit of a hangover of that uh, mentality that uh, sahib is uh, sahib who's talking to them yeah so i think they're they're used to there's a certain uh, you know thing that uh, yeah it's a sahib it's okay so did you did you encounter any unpleasant experiences at all uh, along the way or people were like in general very equable well i mean there were some small little things like you know people trying to you know, rob you a little bit cheat you a little bit not not rob so much but basically you know charge the tourist surcharge for everything so in that sense to you know cheat cheat us as travelers but i think that's par for the course for anybody who's traveling anywhere and uh, apart from that uh, at the china border i at that time was not very happy about being sort of uh, you know uh, stopped by the army because we had an inner line permit and it was a valid inner line permit and it mentioned specifically procured after a lot of effort as you mentioned in the book yeah and and it it specifically mentions the places you're allowed to go and so Geling, which is where we were stopped and sent back was mentioned as one of the places and it's not like we wanted to do anything great we are just going and we'd reached the edge of the village. We would have gone there, walked around, had a cup of tea and come back. You know, So they, they didn't really have to treat us like, uh, you know, like like we are there uh, on a on a spying mission, having a cup of tea in Gelling village. I don't know what, what great national secrets we would have found in a tea shop in Gelling village. Right, right, true. So after all those uh, rides on magic buses, how are you holding up? Oh, I don't know. I hope my, I mean, at that time, we got jolted around quite a bit. Uh, although the fact that you're packed in really tight makes it better because then, you know, there's no space for movement. So uh, you're sort of, everybody's wedged against everybody else and the whole compact mass of humanity is wedged against the interiors of the little bus. Yeah. So you're, you're okay. You know, it keeps all, everybody's spines in good shape. So it, it actually lends itself to a better gaze of the surroundings as you move around because there's no scope for conversation. Uh, there's even conversation in the middle of that. Sometimes people are also talking in the middle of that. You can't see much. Right. I mean, you can't move much, so it's difficult to see much. 
unless you happen to be sitting in front next to the driver but otherwise you can't see much right that's actually where you had that uh, longish conversation with the man who said he works with the id out there that was in one of the sumos going up the siang right. valley and uh, so this guy was you know basically pretty much i don't think he, was he sitting on on my lap or i was sitting on his but we were basically like packed in really tight right and uh, we had a lot of time for conversation rolling up the siang river valley so two books out uh, what's up next for samrat chaudhary well i guess now i'm uh, hopefully you know shaping up to be what i can call myself a writer now i hope uh, i used to call myself a journalist but now i don't work full time as a journalist so hopefully i can start calling myself a writer and hopefully i can write one or two more books right thank you so much for joining us samrat and uh, we hope to connect with you uh, again in future and wish you all the very best uh, for this book which is already out in the stands the breeding river thank you so much Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindu's podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d 4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 